The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. our nation's capital. It's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. With us, as usual, is our intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, He's on the boards to make sure the show runs on time and stays online. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about two important issues uh, that are instrumental Uh, in the future of the United States. Uh, The first one, it's time for the nation to ditch denial and face reality. In the first half hour, Michael Sorosco, campaigns director at Citizens for Tax Justice, joins us to discuss the disastrous economic impact of uh, dangerous weather. Then in the second half hour, Edward Theogene, Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress, uh, talks about the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling. First, though, we have this clip uh, from Michael Flanagan, uh, a climate change expert who talks on the PBS NewsHour about the disastrous effects of bad weather. This week, we saw the hottest global temperatures ever recorded. That's since tracking began in 1979. What does that tell us, and how concerning is that to you? It's very concerning. We're in uncharted territory, and we jumped up 0.3 of a degree Fahrenheit. That may not sound like much, but compared to our record, that's sticking out like a sore thumb. So we're in uncharted territory. We can expect more record-breaking heat as El Nino builds in. Scientific models have, of course, been predicting a warming climate for some time, but did we expect to see these kinds of temperatures this soon? I would say our models on temperature have been pretty good. Where we've fallen short is on impacts. We're seeing much more impacts from our warming climate than what we expected. And the impacts are only going to get worse and worse. Tell me more about what you mean by impacts. So I study forest fires, and I've been studying forest fires since the 1970s. And I've never seen a year like we're seeing in Canada this year. This is exceptional, extreme, and we're into new territory. We have burned almost 9 million hectares, and that's bigger than the state of South Carolina. And these fires will continue to burn through the summer and they will generate smoke that can impact tens of millions of people. If you live in downtown New York City, 
the likelihood of your place burning down is essentially zero, but you could be smoked out for weeks from a fire that's a thousand miles away from New York City. Professor Flanagan, of course, we've seen the impact of those fires, as you mentioned, down here in the U.S. Help us understand how climate change is part of the conversation in driving these record fires you're seeing. So as the climate warms, we're seeing more and more fire. And people ask me all the time, why is temperature so important? Well, it's because we're getting longer fire season with that warming. We're getting more lightning-caused fires with that warming. And lightning-caused fires are responsible for most of the burned area in Canada. Also, as we warm, it dries out the fuels. And drier fuels means it's easier for a fire to start, easier for a fire to spread, and it means the fires have more fuel to burn, which means it leads to a higher intensity fire, which can be difficult to impossible to extinguish. That was Professor Michael Flanagan, a climate change expert, talking about the disaster effects of global warming uh, on the environment. Our guest in this half hour is uh, Michael Sorisco, who is the campaign director at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Uh, Michael is uh, here to discuss a new report issued by Taxpayers for Common Sense, which is called Paying the Price, Taxpayers Footing the Bill for the Increasing Cost of Climate Change. Uh, Michael, welcome uh, to uh, Deadline DC. Thanks, thanks for, for joining us me. today. Yep, thanks for having me. Okay, well, uh, we heard Professor Flanagan discuss the uh, cl- uh, the disastrous effects that climate change has on the weather. Uh, tell us about the disastrous effects that the that climate change, bad weather, has on the American taxpayer. Well, it was actually a, a really good uh, intro, that, that clip, because what he um, is talking about when he's saying impacts is really trying to get a sense of what the damage is going to be that we are going to have to deal with um, as a consequence of more frequent and intense. And in, in this case, he was talking about wildfires, but that is true. Uh, across the board for hurricanes and droughts and flooding. And so what we did uh, at Taxpayers for Common Sense is we set out to give a, you know, try and capture all of the ways that uh, the federal government and taxpayers like you and me are spending money today, not you know, 50 years from now, as you know, we talk about climate change as being some, you know, distant um, phenomena. Uh, But so what we are spending right now out of our pockets to deal with the effects of climate change. And so as complicated as that is now, you know, I'm going to preface this by saying that's a very difficult thing to try and nail down to the dollar amount. Imagine. Uh, But you know, and that and that is actually as you go and you look at a lot of the research that we did to do this report, we looked at the things that federal agencies have been producing as a result of the Biden administration's executive order directing all of the federal agencies to assess their climate risk. And a lot of what we were seeing is that agencies just don't know, right? They they don't have the tools. You know, if they do start to try and figure it out, the administration changes in that work kind of comes to a complete stop. And so you have this sort of broken process of trying to figure out how much 
we are actually paying every year. So, so taxpayers were common sense. We went out, we looked at things like crop insurance, flood insurance, um, the ways that the, the Defense Department has had to increase or change how it spends money as a consequence of these extreme weather events. Um, we looked at wildfire spending and just the you know out of control growth of what the Forest Service and the USDA has to spend every year to um, suppress wildfires. Uh, and you come out on the other end of this process, you know, we came out with this number of about 60 to $62 billion as the average amount that we have spent every year for the past five years on programs that are directly, you know, repairing and insuring against and mitigating against the impacts, the effects of these severe weather events. And that amount, as you might imagine, has gone up. Uh, it is almost uh, tripled uh, over the last 10 years. Um, and, and it is about, since, you know, you start talking about billions of dollars and people sort of glaze over, that is larger than the amount that we allocate on a yearly basis to many federal agencies. So Homeland Security, Justice Department, State Department, Environmental Protection Agency. So they receive less in funding on a year to year basis than what we would spend across the federal government. And, you know, and again, this is a very conservative estimate um, in response to these extreme weather events through all of the different programs that the government has. Okay. Uh, are members of Congress aware of how much money we're spending to deal with these weather disasters? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sure some of them have, have, you know, I mean, our Congress, you know, as you know, and most people suspect you can kind of divide them into different camps. I think there's a, a big number of uh, members of Congress who, who may not believe that, that, you know, the climate change itself is a hoax. Um, and then there may be some who believe it's real, but we're not doing it, you know, it's not our fault. Uh, you know, I don't. You know, I don't know what. Like, there's no legislation that's on the table right now that you know speaks to. I mean, there's all kinds of things, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, you know, increased spending on lots of different. Hey, Michael, uh, I want to talk more about this, but we have to sh uh, take a short break for our radio listeners. Uh, if you're watching us on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, we're going to continue this discussion with Michael Sorosco who is Campaign Director at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Welcome back Headline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Michael Soresco, who is the campaign director uh, at, CID, at uh, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Uh, we're talking about the relation. Uh, we're talking about government spending, uh, the impact that uh, climate change and weather disasters have on uh, on uh, government expenditures. Which, uh, if you've been watching the show, is the amount is extraordinary. 
Michael, let me ask you this question. Uh, last year in 2022, uh, Congress uh, passed a bill sponsored by President Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which includes uh, money uh, to fight climate change. And my question to you is, uh, how much do you know how much money we spend on fighting climate change compared to the money that we're spending because of climate change disasters? Well, that's a good question. And I'd have to get back to you uh, okay. to do like a dollar to dollar uh, uh, comparison. And, and, and part of, you know, part of what's so difficult about, you know, putting numbers to these things are are the the ways that climate change is changing, you know, the the nature of the work that different agencies are doing. And I'll give you a quick example of that. So one of the big um, question marks when we looked at the Department of Defense about how much it's spending on climate change, which, you know, includes, you know, wildfire suppression spending or, um, you know, there's Obviously, the, the Navy has a lot of um, bases along the coastline. And so when you have a sea level rise of several feet, then those bases need to be moved, which is not a, a cheap you know, or easy thing to do. But and, and, and many bases right now already, the one in Norfolk, uh, which is one of the biggest ones, uh, two of the four of main dry docks, they're flood regularly. So they've already begun that process. But one of the big changes that's happening is that is is in the Arctic, uh, which of course is a an area that everyone is kind of looking at when we talk about climate change. And as the ice of the Arctic melts and opens new shipping lanes, um, that changes the you know it changes a lot for private industry. And it sounds like it might be this great economic opportunity, and it may be. But there are you know costs associated that that will the taxpayers will. Uh, incur, such as, you know, the the Defense Department will need to, uh, you know, accommodate or protect our, uh, you know, Americans that would be traveling through this new, um, these new sea lanes. And there's all, you know, a, a wealth of natural resources beneath the Arctic Ocean that is not uh, in, in any, you know, specific countries. Uh, what's called economic exclusion zone. So it's they're sort of up for grabs. And you know you have these changing dynamics that affect the you know the missions and the deployments of American forces that are affected by climate change in you know five, 10, 20 year um, uh, time frame, it's going to be it may be dramatically different. and that's and that's in addition to, all of the effects that the Defense Department has to deal with with climate change. I mean, we have bases all over the world in practically every conceivable climate that exists. And so, as permafrost melts, as you know, heat waves like the one we're having in the South and Southwest now become more intense and longer. Um, you know, taxpayers feel those costs because. All of that is coming out of our pocket to, uh, you know, to to deal with. The Tyndall Air Force Base in North Carolina got hit by a single hurricane that caused three billion dollars worth of damage, and it took years. is still under, uh, you know, repairs. 
So these are the these are the kinds of things that make taxpayers so vulnerable to the impacts of climate change because we just have so many different you know dogs in that fight, if you will, uh, whether it's through insurance like crop insurance or flood insurance or through just owning property, you know, public property that gets destroyed. Okay. Uh, by the way, I want to remind our radio listeners that if you'd like to see us, uh, in addition to uh, listening to us, uh, you can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon, uh, or you can watch us on Facebook at facebook.com front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Michael Sorosco, who is the campaign director at, at uh, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Let me ask you this question, and I don't know if you know the answer, but there's no harm ask, asking it. Uh, you've outlined the billions of dollars uh, that the government spends every year on uh, fighting weather disasters. And for those of you who have looked at the news in the last couple of days, just as an example, uh, there's massive flooding in upstate New York in the Hudson River Valley, which I'm sure are costing New York State and the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, millions of dollars uh, to clean up, to rescue people, to restore the infrastructure after the rain stops. Uh, what, I'm, I'm sort of curious. Do you know, Michael, how much we spend every year on subsidies uh, to uh, fossil fuel companies? Well, I, I don't have that number off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but we do. You know, taxpayers, there are a lot of federal subsidies that exist in many different forms that you know, support the production and consumption of fossil fuels. It's a, it's an area that my, some of my colleagues at Taxpayers for Common Sense have spent a long time looking at. Um, and uh, it, it is a good example of how we are spending money now as taxpayers on these subsidies. A, for an industry that doesn't need it. I think the oil and gas industry has demonstrated that it's pretty profitable. And B, that may be creating costs for us taxpayers down the road okay uh yeah it sort of reminds me of the federal government spending money on cancer research fighting cancer and also sub, you know subsidizing uh tobacco <laughs> uh, farming uh, and it seems to me that by spending money on uh, fossil fuel subsidies which the companies don't need because they're making ridiculous record profits uh we're just in making climate change worse which is going to drive up our cost for de dealing with weather disasters uh let me ask you one last question um are there policy recommendations that come with this report uh we don't know this report is is purely informational it is uh you know one of a number of things that we're going to put out about this and the whole the goal of this was to just kind of begin this conversation. Uh, Michael, thanks us for joining us today. Our guest at this half hour is Michael Sobresco, who is the campaign director at Taxpayers with Common Sense. Uh, in the next half hour, our guest would be Wilby, 
Edwith Theogene, Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC. Uh, in this half hour, we're going to talk uh, first about uh, fr- the Supreme Court's uh, ruling that bans affirmative action in uh, consideration of uh, higher education admissions. Uh, but before we do that uh, and bring on our guest, who you see there, Edward Thirgene, uh, we're going to play this clip with President Biden's reaction to the Supreme Court's decision. So today I want to offer some guidance to our nation's colleges as they review their admission systems after today's decision. Guidance that is consistent with today's decision. They should not abandon, let me say this again, they should not abandon their commitment to ensure student bodies of diverse backgrounds and experience that reflect all of America. What I propose for consideration is a new standard, where colleges take into account the adversity a student has overcome when selecting among qualified applicants. President Biden, the Congressional Black Caucus said the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. Okay, that was President Biden uh, reacting to the Supreme Court's uh, decision that bans affirmative action. Uh, The court's decision last week to ban affirmative action, allowing race to be considered in college and university admissions, is just the latest battle in America's long history of fighting over race relations. This fight has encompassed slavery, civil rights, education, immigration, and political power. And demographic trends indicate that uh, that issues of race will dominate American politics over the next generation. The high court's decision in Students for Fair Admissions versus the president and fellows of Harvard College will increase racial tension and make it more difficult for the nation to navigate the rocky road to a more diverse multiracial society. Race-blind admission processes will further exacerbate existing inequalities and undermine the recognition of the unique challenges that Black, uh, Latino, and Native American students encounter through the admissions process, according to the Economic Policy Institute. By disregarding the significance of race, these approaches risk creating a wider divide uh, between uh, communities of color. Reverend Martin Luther King often said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's one of my favorite quotes. I've used it on the show before. Uh, There is a generation of fights for racial justice ahead for the United States. The court's decision to ban affirmative action is just the latest fissure in the great racial divide that threatens the unity of the United States. The fight will go on for America to evolve into a more uh, just multiracial society, despite what the Supreme Court says. 
Uh, if you want to read the rest of this recent column I wrote for The Messenger uh, on affirmative action, you can find it at muckrack.com. That's all one word, muckrack.com, front slash Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is an old friend, uh, Edward Theogene, who's Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Uh, welcome back uh, to Deadline, DC, Edwith. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, uh, let's start with this. Uh, what was your initial reaction uh, to the Supreme Court's decision to ban affirmative action? I don't think it was a surprise. Most people thought uh, this was coming. Uh, but what was your immediate action uh, reaction when you heard about the decision? Um, I wasn't very surprised either. Um, I was just thinking about how we had a couple of good SCOTUS decisions that were coming out and around like the voting rights and stuff like that and gerrymandering. Um, and I was just like, they're probably setting us up for something really bad. So I had already been thinking about this, I think, for a while and was very concerned when I realized that the Supreme Court like took this case up. Um, but it is shocking, right? Like with this decision, they basically upended about four decades of precedent, right? This is like, I don't know, this is this is a major blow for sure. OK, well, let me ask you the next obvious question. Why is it a major blow and what kind of uh, impact will it have on American society? Um, it's really hard to say, but I do know that race conscious admissions policies have really helped sort of address a lot of the historic harms and discrimination that have existed. You know, like this is part of affirmative action was part of trying to address like the history of discrimination, trying to address the fact that not everyone could access education equally. Um, and this is definitely like a step back and it makes me sort of concerned about what this means for future race conscious policy making and for all the wins that we've made in terms of the Civil Rights Act um, and other civil rights that we have. So I'm just I'm trying to process all of that myself and I'm sure everyone is thinking about this as well, but it is a major blow. I think it's uh, most universities and institutions are going to have to be now more incumbent to ensure that there's diversity within the classrooms and within these institutions. So um, we definitely need to focus on how we can create diversity in spite of this. Okay. Now, one of the justices uh, who dissented, uh, one of the three justices, and I don't remember which one, maybe you do, uh, who dissented from the ruling, uh, noted in states like California, where uh, state law had already banned affirmative action, uh, there'd been a significant drop uh, in uh, in African American and Latino students at the, of those universities. Do you know if that's true? Yeah, I actually looked at a couple of the numbers, and I think I was looking specifically. Maybe it was like UC Berkeley. Yeah. And there was a drop in terms of like the diversity of the makeup of the class. There's a couple of questions of whether it resembles the demographics of. Uh, the area, but knowing that this is a national sort of like institution where people come from all over the country, um, you would imagine, and it is sort of like a diverse area, like you would imagine that that would resemble um, the diversity of our country and who we are as a people, but without affirmative action, um, yes, there was a significant drop. Okay, uh, well, uh, the next question, uh, how 
what leeway now do colleges and universities have to ensure diverse uh, student population uh, without uh, using affirmative action? Yeah, I think um, we need to find like other clear race conscious remedies um, and protections. So I think that in this moment right now, like it's not just diversity of race, right? But there's also diversity of classes, diversity of access to money, diversity of uh, region and location. So I think like in order to support the full breadth of, of the diverse country and diverse Americans to getting access to an education, like a lot of institutions are gonna have to try to come up with different strategies and implement those strategies in a way to ensure that everyone can have access to an education. I know there's been a lot of conversation right now around legacy folks, like folks who've been uh, legacy admissions within institutions, like that's something that we also need to take a critical look at as well. Okay, okay. Uh, let me ask you uh, this question. Uh, do you think, you know, I, I uh, the president, uh, when he reacted to the decision, uh, suggested that uh, instead of using race uh, as a criteria for admissions, uh, colleges and universities might want to try, you know, measuring adversity in different ways. One way of doing that uh, is, of course, is uh, income. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, I think that's great. And I think that that is a solve for right now, like another way to look at it. But I also think that we need to figure out how do we get to a place to talk about race and to talk about racism and to talk about discrimination and to talk about bias and all of those things and still consider those as we think about the institutions in our country and the legacy of the harm um, that exists because of redlining, because of um, lack of equity within education. So I think adversity is definitely important, right? But at the same time, I don't think we should shy away from um, race-conscious considerations. Do you have any idea how colleges and universities can do that without violating the, the parameters set by the Supreme Court? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of ways to do that and to take a look at, um, you know, I think the adversity angle is like a good path forward. I don't have anything like 100%. Like I wish I could write the book right now and be like, here's what all our institutions should do. I do know that some of my colleagues here at CAP are thinking about those things. Um, so yeah, I just know that they really need to redouble their efforts and really meet the urgency of this moment because it's going to okay. greatly impact us. We're going to go to a break for our radio listeners, but don't go anywhere. Anybody uh, we will be right back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest is Edwith Theogene, Senior Director of Equity and Race uh, Justice at the Center for American Progress. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Edward Theogene, Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. We were talking uh, about, uh, before we went to the break, uh, and by the way, I was watching a baseball game over the weekend, and one of the announcers started a topic, and the other announcer said, please, 
don't start a new topic after they're two outs in the inning. Uh, <laughs> I always do that one. I'll have to figure out how to manage those better. But anyway, I was this is uh, this month we have both the anniversary of the uh, minimum wage uh, and the Black Woman's Equal Pay Day, uh, and Edwith is here uh, to discuss. Uh, economic issues with us. I should also say that if you are listening on the radio and you want to see us as well as hear us, uh, you can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon and on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. So Ed, with what do you have to say about the uh, the uh, condition, economic uh, status of uh, African Americans uh, since Joe Biden became president. Uh, you mentioned before we went to the break that this uh, ruling on affirmative action will have a detrimental effect on that. Yes, I was saying that the ruling on affirmative action will definitely have some economic implications, considering that higher education is one of the past ways to building economic security. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that the Biden administration has definitely done a good job in terms of like strengthening our economy, making sure that there's high um, labor participation for people of color, for black and Latino communities. Um, but even with that and even with the gains that have been made, um, you know, black and brown communities are still lagging behind their white counterparts. Um, so a lot of the issues that existed like pre-pandemic and pre this sort of like economic moment still exist. Um, and you notated that Black Women's Equal Pay Day is coming up this month, which is true. On July 27th, um, it's the proximate day for Black Women's Equal Pay Day. And on that day, um, Black women compared to non-Hispanic white men will be making 67 cents for full-time year-round work um, and 67 cents to the dollar. So that's still far behind a lot of different folks and communities. And it just makes me think about how black women are also one of the most highly educated um, groups in populations. And they also are impacted by large amounts of student debt. Another SCOTUS case that came out recently is um, the doing away of some of uh, President Biden's like uh, cancellation of student debt. So that's also gonna doubly impact black women. Um, and this month, you're totally right, it's the anniversary of the minimum wage, and the minimum wage is currently not a living wage. Um, there's been a lot of studies and done of like what the impact could be if we raise the minimum wage to ensure that people are able to have more money to manage day-to-day -day activities and more money to manage everyday emergencies. Um, so all of this stuff combined with the fact it just really paints this this really big narrative around what is happening to black women and what will be happening to young black women in their futures. Um, so it's a lot of consideration. Now, uh, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action uh, and uh, against affirmative action and the court's uh, ruling uh, that uh, denied the president's initiative to uh, forgive student loans, uh, those will have a detrimental effect on the African-American community. Uh, my question is, uh, do you, despite those limitations, you know, and there's also a Republican House of Representatives to deal with, uh, do you think the uh, 
the Biden administration has the means and the vehicles to approve the situation, even though its uh, efforts are constrained by the other two branches of the government? Yeah, that's a very interesting question about, I guess, the public policy process and the state of politics in this country. Um, you know, I do believe that the administration has a sense of the urgency around this. He's definitely, um, President Biden has definitely staked how much, how important it is for him to have a whole government approach to equity and centering that in a lot of the different policies that they have in a lot of the federal agencies. Um, so I think he does have like the interest, the urgency, the leadership to really respond to this moment where a lot of our our wins are being like under attack. But in terms of, of the actual like political power and cloud and all of that stuff, um, it's really hard to say, right? The courts, we right now are experiencing a very more politically active court than we've seen in the past. We're also dealing with the gridlock that exists in Congress. I mean, in order for equity to 100% be real and felt by the people, we need a government that actually works, right? Um, and incorporates those kinds of policies that we need to to make that so. So yeah, I, I feel like that's a that's kind of a hard question to say. I wouldn't even know what to <laughs> what to guide that by. I wish I had some in, intel, some behind the scenes intel of what could be possible. Uh, yeah, well, it's difficult. I mean, the rea- you know the reality we're stuck with this Supreme Court, uh, and there's six conservative judges on the court. Uh, all six of them voted to ban affirmative action. Uh, we've got uh, Democrats who have a very shaky majority in the Senate, uh, which is going to be under a lot of pressure in the 2024 uh, uh, elections. Uh, the uh, Republican House, as it stands now, is um, a great obstacle to social change uh, and um, prospects for Democrats look better on the House side than they do uh, on the uh, Senate side, thanks to uh, uh, people like uh, George Santos. Uh, but uh, is there anything specific you'd like to see the Biden administration do uh, within this context, uh, you know, between now and the end of uh, 2024? I'm not sure what I'd like to see the Biden administration do, but I think right now, just what I've seen of SCOTUS, the confidence in the courts is like at an all time low. Yes. For so, good reason. Yes, for good reason. Not just like these decisions that we see coming out, but also some of the ethics scandals that have been coming out too around justices like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, um, which are all very concerning. So I know the Center for American Progress, along with some of our colleagues, are calling for term limits, are calling for codes of ethics. So hoping to see that something happens there. And then also, I think equity should be a cross-party issue, right? So it should also be an issue that everyone is invested in, that policymakers are invested in. We're all stakeholders when it comes to racial equity um, and equity more broadly. So I'm really hoping that we as a country can restore public trust um, within our institutions and can actually make something happen around that. Yeah, you know, I don't see uh, the, uh, uh, the Republican House uh, as it's constituted, uh, being in a great hurry to do any of these things. Um, 
and uh, there are the institutional obstacles in the Senate, such as the filibuster, that make it difficult to do anything there. Um, but, you know, the reality is the president uh, has some running room through executive orders uh, to uh, move these things forward. Uh, one last question while I have you. Uh, uh, as I said uh, in the, an early segment of this interview, uh, we're going to have a majority minority nation uh, in the very near future. Uh, do you think uh, that will result in better ra racial relations or worse? I mean, it's hard to predict the future, but I will say that we are already a diverse country. Um, the census is also undercount for various reasons. Um, the can actually provide us with a clear exact number of exactly. how many people Trump of color. administration did everything it could not to count Latinos uh, in the last sentence. Yeah, so I, I almost want to say that we're already here, right, where we are diverse and mixed and um, it's hard to call marginalized groups minorities anymore, just given mm -hmm. the lack of like clear information of what the counts are. Um, but the presence of diversity uh, is nothing without actual inclusion, right? So we may be a diverse country, but if we're not actually included within our institutions, within our systems and the political process and all of those things, then I think it could be just more of the same. So- Well, we're gonna lead it on, on that note and uh, hopefully uh, things will get better because America is gonna be forced to confront these changes uh, and uh, we hope to have you back on the show with, with to talk about them. Our thank guest, you. Half hour, I want to thank our guest, uh, Edward Theogene, uh, Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress, uh, and Michael Sarusco, uh, the Campaigns Director at Taxpayers Common Sense, and our uh, intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the show runs well, despite my worst efforts. Uh, we'll talk, we'll be back soon. Thanks for joining us on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.